So, I'm writing a novel. Is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview special guests. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. So you know what? There's a format I'm pretty interested in, even though this podcast is called So I'm Writing a Novel. The novella. Longer than a short story, shorter than a novel. Can be pretty good and punchy, I think. And yeah, it's something that I've been seeing get published a little more often. In particular, Tor.com likes to do that kind of thing with their Murderbot series or Margaret Killjoy's anarchist kind of supernatural investigator series that begins with The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion, which I greatly enjoyed reading earlier this year. So... I was pretty okay with it when an author approached me with their sword and sorcery novella asking if I'd check it out, maybe give them like an Amazon review. And I was like, I'll do you better. I'll have you on the show. That author's name is Chase A. Fulmer. Chase A. Fulmer is a writer of all forms of speculative fiction, particularly in the vein of weird fantasy and horror. The central philosophy behind much of his work can be expressed most eloquently by weird fiction author Clark Ashton Smith, who wrote, Only the impossible has any real charm. The possible has been vulgarized by happening too often. <laughs> what a great line, huh? Chase is also, uh, on top of being an author, an editor, well, associate editor, for Witch House, amateur magazine of cosmic horror. And if that name sounds familiar, yes, it did come up in my earlier interview with Jason Ray Carney, who oversees Whetstone, the amateur magazine of sword and sorcery. So, without further ado, let's get to know Chase and learn a little bit about his awesome sword and sorcery novella, Frolic on the Amaranthin. Just uh, an hour of me uh, shaming you and humiliating you in front of a public audience. That's my kink. Anyway, oh good, that was the first word that got recorded. Yeah. Uh, that's my kink. All right, cool. Well, now we've established that. Oh no. Here, <laughs> here I am with Chase. How are you doing, man? Hey, man. How are you? Not too bad. All right. Well, I can see no reason to waste any time. Let's get into it. All right. Would you please tell us a little bit? of your origin story as a creative writer and as a fan of sword and sorcery. Did those two things start for you at the same time or like, how'd that go? Uh, not exactly the same time. I would say that my introduction to sword and sorcery specifically was actually pretty late in terms of it happened fairly recently, only several years ago or something. I've been interested in writing ever since uh, college for me. I graduated in 2014, I believe. And Ever since then, I've tried my hand at writing different projects and usually all very much in the fantasy or weird, weird fiction vein. And just having like a lot of trial and error and a lot of error, a lot of failure <laughs> in that regard. And then until recently when, basically when Whetstone got created, the magazine, that was, mm -hmm. um, that was the first time that I really, like, I think I had read, I'd read Clark Ashton Smith before learning about Whetstone. But before Whetstone, I didn't have like a good concrete image of what Sword and Sorcery actually was. And so then when I saw the submission page for that, and I had, I'd actually taken a, a class at the Muse, which I know you've taken. Yeah, with Howard Andrew Jones, yeah. Yeah, I took one with uh, Jason Ray Carney. Ah, uh, okay. There, yeah. And, and so I was like, this sounds really interesting. And so I, I started looking into Sword and Sorcery, doing like a deep dive in terms of, you know, what is this thing? And the more I read up on it, the more it really sort of kind of clicked for me of like, 
the infusion of fantasy and horror is what really like sparked my imagination. That really like jump-started my writing into, I think, really helping me gain my writer's voice, I think. Because I think that was something I was having a hard time struggling with before. Like one of my biggest influences in terms of like what I was trying to write beforehand was a lot of basically HP Lovecraft, you know, <laughs> like everybody. You're not alone. I think we've all oh, dabbled with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like every, once you start reading that, you're like, oh my God, this is, how can I sound like this? But then. How can I describe a monster that can't possibly be described? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then everything that you do is going to come up as like just the the palest imitation of what, you know, of something that he's done. And so being able to like branch out from that and try something that is that is still atmospheric, still still moody, like weird fiction, but that also introduces the idea of that also has the element of action that has the element of moving the plot much more forward and much more quickly forward than a typical weird fiction story. I think that blended together really well in terms of um, my writing style and everything. So, Oh, very cool. And I guess that class with uh, Jason must have gone places for you in the sense because now you're working with him as editor of Witch House magazine, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the Muse is in Norfolk, Virginia, and that's, that's where I currently live. And he's pretty close in the general area too. So we've been able to, you know, meet up once in a while and have some pretty good literary focused conversations and everything. And no, I can believe it. I don't know if you listened to the interview, but yeah, like what yeah. Jason, I had Jason on here and it got pretty good, man. Like, yeah. Yeah. So that's your competition. You better be at least as good as Jason or oh, no. I'm going to press the gatekeeper <laughs> button and you'll never be allowed to write certain sorcery again because I have that power. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, congratulations on like, you know, finding your voice. I mean, even if it was a little later in life, like whatever, yeah. uh, you found it. I think there are people who never do or, or, Maybe a better way of putting it is never feel they have, right? I think so much of it is confidence. Yeah. And I think maybe a big thing too is like, I've heard some people say this, that when you get into the sort of genre that you like and that you want to write in, that becomes the main thing that you read. And I think that one of the biggest things you can do is expand that reading pool, you know, like read widely, mm -hmm. go to, go to different genres that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think have any sort of relevance to what you're writing in. Because then you can, like, you gain so much more, not only just information, but like stylistic inspiration from other things like that. Well, absolutely. And Sword and Sorcery is so good for that in a sense, because, you know, as I mentioned in here before, I think one of the guys, you know, from what's on Discord, Ashiguru pointed out, and it stuck with me, this whole thing of how, you know, Robert E. Howard with Conan, like, he didn't just tell what you think of as a classic Sword and Sorcery. He goes and fights a monster and gets some treasure or whatever uh, routine. Like, he told, like, you know, practically, uh, like, detective stories, horror stories, pirate stories. Like, he just, you know, Sword and Sorcery was like a cloak he could put around another genre. Yeah, exactly. And so, of course, he went to read further field. Yeah. So, okay. So, uh, before we get into the nitty gritty, because I wouldn't mind actually asking you some of the other stuff you read that fed into it, what is the elevator pitch for? Frolic on the Amaranth. And if someone was like, hey, man, what's this book? And like picked it up off a table, but you're, maybe you're at a convention or something or at a signing. And they were like, what is this about? I, I don't know anything. What would you tell them? I have to say that maybe that it would be, I'm pretty bad at elevator pitches. <laughs> um, oh, hey, no, it, it's, it's not fun. I, I yeah. It puts you right on the spot. I, I, I haven't been trained in them. I wouldn't feel comfortable about yeah. <laughs> at all. Uh, but even, even so. That being said, it's definitely not about a talking bear, right? So No. <laughs> Okay, so I think that if I were to try to give an elevator pitch, it would be imagine a, a weird fantasy heist setting. Basically, a, a Jack Vance dying Earth story that is also a heist. 
Yeah, and it's like centered around a romantic couple. I mean, that was one of yeah. the reasons why when I saw you uh, posting, like, hey, I got a thing coming down the pipe on Whetstone. I was like, oh, neat, because I don't think you see a hell of a lot of that. Maybe I'm not reading the right books and watching the, uh, the right movies. But, you know, I, my brain almost goes all the way back to stuff like the Thin Man movies or uh, the Elongated Man and his wife, Sue Dibney, in the <laughs> DC Comics. Like, I, I, I mean, I know there's probably piles of stuff I'm not aware of. That's always the case in life. But yeah, I still think it makes the story stand out to have it be centered around a romantic couple rather than, you know, two people who have sexual tension. Will they get together? You know, or, you know, maybe they're like African Grand Master and they're, you know, having their own independent partners throughout the whole thing. I think that was a pretty cool choice. What brought you to that? Um, I think it was like one of the big inspirations that I have for a lot of my writing is sometimes just artwork that I see. And I think it was just this piece of art on Instagram that I saw that it just had two people, like a man and a woman, and they seemed to have like that sort of connection. And it just, it scratched an itch for me. Cause like you said, there's duos in sword and sorcery. And then there's basically the, the hero who, as the, you know, as the trope goes, they get the girl at the end. The relationship is yep. basically the, the prize and everything. And to me, both of those things are, you know, pretty overdone i'd say and i i wanted something that like that was unique but also familiar so we'd kind of combine those two and have something to where there was an immediate rapport between the two characters that might not be something that you would get from just a straight duo i think it also helped me with some of the the themes a little bit the themes that came up later in the book too of how the different characters deal with some of the th themes that i introduced so well without spoiling the details what what are some of the themes and ideas that you were, you were exploring in the book? You know, it's a cool heist. We got this interesting romantic couple at the center of this plot. What are the like ideas underpinning this whole thing? So one of the big things is the idea of beauty, but in a horrific sort of way. Like the idea of what happens when beauty and striving for beauty goes too far in a horrific direction. So yeah, one of the big inspirations for me would be the the decadent movement in the idea of feeling like you're becoming separated from the natural world and trying to fulfill that whole with artificiality, with sensationalism. And it ties a lot into the time periods that it was taking place in, which was the late 19th century and the general feeling of dissatisfaction with the world, uh, the feeling of like of uh, decay, the, the, the changing of the time in the, in the fin de siècle, changing of the eras and everything. There's this idea that, you know, things are growing worse than there was in a previous era. I think that's a big theme in the sword and sorcery genre in general. Like there's the whole idea in the Conan stories of civilization versus barbarism. There's a huge impact of that, I think, in the dying earth stories of basically what do morals mean at the absolute end of time. <laughs> you could almost say there's no reason to act in a moral way because literally the next day could just be the end of time. Yeah, exactly. Like with The Dying Earth, one thing I always love about it is the feeling that anything can end at any moment, but also behind, like that's looking forward. You can't really look forward more than a minute. And also behind you is more history than anyone could ever possibly remember. Everything's happened in a yeah. way. So what does anything mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like Sword and Sorcery, which, you know, I, I kind of view that as a, you know, a facet of weird fiction in general. And weird fiction had its big heyday in... I wouldn't necessarily say that it was the decadent movement, but it was kind of on the tail end of, of things for that. Weird fiction was in the early 20th century. And so, you know, I, I see a lot of um, things in our modern day and age of this idea of, um, I have what I'm trying to say, but... 
Well, are you thinking about maybe how, you know, people want to make certain countries great again? You know, this kind of calling back to when everything was perfect, which is conveniently always a little before you were alive. There's definitely that. There's also an aesthetic part of it, too, where you look at something like the most obvious thing for me is just plastic surgery, like the glorification and commodification of appearance of people who are willing to do anything and everything to strive towards this idea that they have of beauty, no matter what the actual consequences of that are. I was just reading recently uh, The Portrait of Dorian Gray or The Picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah. And there's the whole idea where Dorian stays looking beautiful and handsome long after he should have started growing old. And even though he's described as, as appearing beautiful, people in the later parts of the book, they start becoming like disgusted by him. Like they know that that's not how someone should be. They know that that's not how, that's not how the natural order of things should go. So it's like, even though he still has this outward appearance of being beautiful, they know that something is almost rotten on the inside. A lot of that is something that I was trying to um, trying to work into this book because, you know, usually the obvious and the go-to method of horror is something that is disgusting, that is gross, that is repellent to look at or repellent to know about. But I think that the opposite can be said too. When you strive towards or when you're trying to seek something that is so beyond the limits of what the natural, I don't want to say the natural way of things because that's- Well, I, that's know, I think I know what you're getting at though, man. I mean, yeah. you're making me think of the uncanny valley, right? There, like when something gets so perfect- that it kind of falls off the human scale and starts to trigger the part of your brain that's like, maybe that's a monster we should run away from. <laughs> I tried to slip a little reference towards the uncanny valley into the story. I don't want to, if you don't want to record this part, it's fine, but I'll tell you. <laughs> ah, no, no, it's... I'm recording all of this, uh, all, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it, man. Lay it on us. Tell us this uh, hideous secret. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, well, I can't actually, no, I can't spoil it. It would spoil things that would happen later in the book, so... <laughs> Okay, well, that's fair. I mean, honestly, like all of this, I, I love it. I love the decadent movement, you know, Dorian Gray. And I, having read it, I've uh, been lucky enough to read it. Thank you for sending me that copy. Yeah, I can see what you're getting at there. Plus, like the relationship thing, to come back to that, I like how the two characters draw strength from each other. And then also their relationship and their sort of um, pure love, I guess you could call it, although it's not without them sometimes getting frustrated with each other and what have you. Uh, is sort of mirrored in a way by he's on the cover so if i can you know there's a there's a villainous wizard in the story yes. who i rather enjoyed who wears a, a metal mask that hides his expressions and so on and he is serving a faraway queen mm -hmm. in his endeavors which i won't get into any more detail because you know buy the book read it but uh you know he definitely talks of a love for this queen but it's kind of like a worshipful one with a hierarchy obviously a hierarchy you know he feels he gets strength from her but ultimately he's serving her and He's not great. I'll just say that, folks. Uh, and things uh, maybe to go for him a little differently than they do for our heroes. Um, and so I think that's kind of neat, too, that you have those contrasting relationships going on with our protagonists and our, I guess, we'll, yeah, I think we can call him a villain. I think we can get away with it, especially in sword and sorcery. Yeah, okay, the wizard's yeah. probably a villain. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So with, like, exactly what you're saying with, like, uh, with the villain, with the sorcerer, he's he has a sort of zealous affection towards the object of his desire, basically. Like that is like putting someone up on like the godlike pedestal, basically, you know, and like this sort of obsession. I tried to make that follow in line with the general theme of the the horror of things, of like how in striving to uphold this, you know, this idea that you might have of beauty or of uh sorry. Uh well, it's kind of a worshipful love with him, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, our two main characters there, Roland and Emerasserie, 
they love each other as equals. They do things for each other because they care for each other and because it feels like the right thing to do. Here's the wizard doing things for his queen because of the power she can give him, right? He wants to do things so that ultimately she'll reward him with power. Yeah. And furthering the pedestal thing you were talking about there, he's obviously met her, but we never meet her. She is invoked from afar. She is to us an idea, further rendering her less human, more uncanny, right? More of a notion, something outside. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, I thought I thought your themes were really tight, man. I really thought the whole thing came together nicely. Thank you. And so yeah, um, if we can go over to some of the sort of the more technical stuff, why novella length? Why, why not a short story? Why not a novel? Why not a 500-page novel with a lot of world building? What the <laughs> hell, man? You fuck, you... <laughs> I try not to curse too much in this, but uh, why did you fuck up so badly? No. Uh, why... I completely <laughs> shot myself in the foot. <laughs> what were you thinking? No. Uh... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I should stop making that kind of joke because A, I've read Door Wedges and enjoyed them, and B, I don't want anybody who likes Door Wedges to feel like I'm making fun of them. It's just such a common frustration, I think, amongst people who love sword and sorcery, which is primarily medium of short stories but novella length i think that's kind of neat for a bunch of reasons i don't want to get into without hearing your reasons first why did you choose this length so one of the biggest reasons i think is because it started off as more of just an actual short story <laughs> it was actually a submission idea to tales of the magician's skull um okay. which they very rightly um rejected it in the state that it was in then <laughs> um but, you know, I, I really liked the ideas that I had, and I really liked the sort of world that I had been building. But I definitely knew that it it wasn't enough to try to balloon out into a full-length novel. I could definitely tell that, you know, if if I tried to expand everything, if I tried to, you know, go into so much depth that I would just get bored with it, I would just get frustrated, and I feel like it would just become unnatural to a certain degree. Also, I just I I personally really like the novella length. I think there's a lot of that a lot that can be gained from that that you both lose in a short story and you lose in a novel as well. I think that when you have a good idea of what you're doing and you have like a strong foundation, you can get the best of both worlds with a novella between a short story and a novel where, you know, with a with a short story, it's, a lot of it is about the impact of the specific scene. You can't go into an in intense amount of detail about everything. You can't go into the backstory of things. It's all about the here and the now for a lot of the times. Whereas with a novel, I feel like a lot of times, you know, you're talking about the, the phone book door stoppers. I think sometimes, you know, I don't want to rag on them too much either, but I think a lot of times there can be a lot of overindulgence <laughs> in those yeah. where writers just create conflicts or create scenarios that don't really further the plot or don't really further much of anything. They probably do. They probably further character development and things like that. But a lot of times it can, it can come across to me, at least of seeming unnecessary. Or travel chapters. I find when you're getting to find out everything about characters walking from A to B, yeah. sometimes amazing things can happen, but sometimes they needed another 20 pages or whatever. Yeah. Yep. And I personally like the idea of constraining yourself in terms of what you are able to do. Again, that bringing it back to Whetstone, that was one of the things that I think really helped and really, really benefited my own personal writing growth is that having that like insanely difficult 2,500 word limit, like that really forces you to think creatively and economically, which, you know, it could kind of seem like a weird pairing, but, but that really helps you to see where you need to be going and see the things that you need to do to keep the story moving and to still be impactful even in a short amount of time 
And I think that that sort of, that sort of mindset has, you know, really spread itself out through a lot of just my writing philosophy. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of times you can tell a very good, very decent story in a much short amount of time. I think like you were saying, you were saying this earlier too, of that, like the phone book size novel is the, the bane of all the sword and sorcery writers. Um, <laughs> I think part of that is because even the longer sword and sorcery stories, they're still about like, you know, the single character and the very up close and personal stakes. Whereas so many times the, the fantasy novels, the epic fantasy novels become like, you know, the huge cast of characters and all it's, you know, a lot of times it is about like these world shattering events. We always have to save the world and everything. And that can get overplayed a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, um, when the world always needs saving. It's kind of like Marvel movies, which I also enjoy. But every, oh, the, at the end of this one, the sky opens up and there's a big explosion, alien, CGI, whatever. Again, huh? Yep. Okay, sure. <laughs> you know, when it, it's, it's in a similar way, and it's almost like the when everything's special, nothing special thing. But yeah. I, I totally agree with you on that singular focus. You know, I recently read for the first time Hour of the Dragon by Robert E. Howard, the one novel-length story he ever told with Conan. And I thought it was so interesting how, you know, Big stuff is happening. You know, kingdoms are rising and falling. Conan uh, is king at this point. And he loses his throne and the whole rest of the book is him trying to get it back. But it's always so tightly focused on him. You know, there's there's all these other characters that kind of go in and out of little adventures he has along the way, but there's never a sprawling cast. It's very easy to follow and very enjoyable. And it's a, always Conan's story, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's one thing that... Um... I heard this in a, that I really enjoy recently where they were talking about how genre fiction, um, in the past, especially like, you know, science fiction and fantasy science fiction used to at one point be like literature of ideas, like the exploration of ideas and fantasy was literature of settings, you know, exploring different interesting settings. Um, whereas nowadays, you know, those still, those things still kind of work their way into a lot of modern genre stuff, but a lot of things nowadays are very much focused on character literature for the exploration of characters and character motivations and everything. And, you know, that can, that's, that's definitely interesting and everything, but I, for me personally, I have like, I definitely veer more towards that maybe old school way of thinking about things where I really like the exploration of both incredibly different and incredibly vivid otherworldly places and combining that with the ideas and themes that, you know, those things can bring up. And I think, you know, I think that that mirrors itself into the sort of sword and sorcery stuff that we've been talking about where the characters are important for sure, but there are a lot of times where they do, they do take a back seat. Like, you know, my, my two personal favorites are, like I said, like Jack Vance, his dying earth stuff and a lot of Clark Ashton Smith. And, you know, in those ones, the characters don't usually make the biggest impression. And when it, they do, it's because of how, like, terrible <laughs> and how awful they are. <laughs> um, or their awful people. fate with Clark Ashton yeah, Smith a lot. Or both, actually, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I thought you did a really good job, man, weaving the world of the story into the action of the plot. You know, the, I don't recall any points where someone just stopped and spoke to the camera for a page about the backstory of blah, 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 blah. It was always kind of woven into like, okay, well, what do we need to know now? How, you know, the dribs and drabs of finding out what they get sucked into over the first few chapters, I thought was paced really well. And it's definitely what I have enjoyed in a lot of the classic sword and sorcery and some of the contemporary sword and sorcery I've read as well. It's just this kind of thing of like, keep it moving. You can kind of juggle everything really along the way. 
you don't have to necessarily stop and go, okay, now we're having a character bit. Okay, now we're having a plot bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, the mixture might change a little bit, but there was always elements of everything you can have in a story going on in every part of your story. And that to me spoke of real skill. Yeah, I, I think one of my main like mindsets going through this was basically try to go into it assuming that everybody already knows what I'm talking about and that assuming that because these characters know the world that they're in, you know, they don't need to go on any sort of exposition dumps and I'm not going to inject any as the author. I really tried to juggle the idea of if I introduce something that is otherworldly or that is very specific to this setting, then I'll introduce it, not linger on it. And then whether it's in a paragraph, a chapter, or a few chapters, I'll then try to naturally weave that later on in to then provide context to something that happened earlier, you know, to keep things moving. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that is a good approach and it really worked out here. You know, I have increasingly tried to remind myself when doing my own work that people are about as story and genre savvy as they perhaps have ever been in the history of our species, just because of the sheer volume of stories we're all consuming all the damn time in whatever yeah. medium. And so, yeah, like, I, you know, I've got a short story on a second draft right now. And a lot of the notes I got from my, my kind reader were like, I like all, a lot of stuff here, but I need you to clarify more. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of swung the metronome a little too far on the other side, I think, on my first draft. Just like, oh, they'll figure it out. And he's like, okay, no, no, I need a little help <laughs> on a few points. Oh, man. <laughs> Hopefully yeah. it'll work out by the time I get to the final draft and submit it to some places. But yeah, you get my point, right? Like, it's kind of oh, yeah. it's kind of fun to go the other way and just, yeah, spread out the explanation and make it as thin on the ground as you can get away with. Because people, even if they're like not able to sit down and write the uh, big history book of your world after they read the story... They've probably been able to go, okay, well, I got the shape of this. I get that this person is, you know, a mover and a shaker. I get that this place is like, you know, a slum of ill repute, even if I don't remember the name of every street that was mentioned, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like people can pick up these these sort of story forms and shapes, I think, and still have a really good time. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious, how long from first ideas through to its imminent release was the process of making this novella a reality? It was at least a year, I'd say. I don't remember, like I said, I initially started this off as a, uh, it was about a 10,000 word short story. So more of like a novelette, I guess maybe. But the first draft started as like a 10,000 word story. And I'm pretty sure that was in the fall of, gosh, it must, it must have been like fall 2020. So, but I didn't start, I didn't start expanding and revising it into the novella format until probably maybe around this time, 2021. So mm. it was at least a full year, I would say, of just all the different revisions, all the different rewrites, everything like that. So it definitely, I definitely didn't try to, well, no, hold on. Um, <laughs> you didn't try to just rush it out, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> That's good. I mean, you know, like I said, you put the work in and it shows. Like, yeah. So in a similar vein, um, like related to all this, on on your blog, I, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I, I checked out your, your author's site and on the blog section, the most recent post, you mentioned that the longer a piece you write, the more intimidating you find the editing process. And then over in the Discord we were chatting a bit, and I think you mentioned this plumped up from that 10 grand to around 28,500 yeah. words. Mm -hmm. How did you find the editing process on Frolic? Not, not, I, hmm. <laughs> We're getting a very thoughtful face here. This is a well-considered <laughs> answer. It will be the best answer you've ever heard on any podcast. No oh, pressure. God. <laughs> so much pressure. <laughs> um, it was both enjoyable and frustrating. 
So editing. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the classic thing where it's like, for me at least, when I'm doing the initial drafts and the, and the initial writing, it, there's parts where it's like exciting because you're like getting stuff down. But then, you know, the longer you go, the more you're just crippled by self-doubt of, you know, whether or not what you've written is good. But then you have to remember that nothing that you write down initially is going to be good. All of that comes about through the editing process. When I actually started having stuff down to be edited, that was, um, I would say that one of the most helpful things that I did was take, I think this was about in draft two or three, I went through Barnes and Noble press and I just printed out basically a, a book version of that draft, huh. basically how you'll see, how, you know, how you have it right now and how this was before I had the final cover image, but I just printed it out in a, you know, a book format, like how you would someone read it. And mm. that really helped because I found that when I was, even if I printed out, you know, the word document and everything, when you're reading it in that format, you can start to kind of like glaze over certain sections. You can start to, um, just be like, oh, this is, this is fine. This is whatever. For some reason, when I had that printed out and I opened it up like I would a normal book, any other book, then that's when it was like, oh my God, if this is something that someone else is going to actually read in this exact same way, I need to do like so much more stuff on, stuff for it. I need to, like that really kicked, um, or... Well, it reframed it, right? So you could see yeah. it more clearly. Like, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I there were so many goddamn typos I caught only at the absolute last sort of stage where I was doing proofs of my first two novels. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, how did I miss these through all these drafts? And I worked with an editor and I, oh, geez. But there's just mm -hmm. something about holding it in your hand the way the reader is going to hold it. Yeah. That is different from, as you say, glazing over maybe a little bit while you scroll down the seemingly infinite uh, long line of a word file or, yeah. you know, chomping through all the sections of a Scrivener file or whatever like. Yeah. Did you Did you work with an editor or have beta readers or...? I had some beta readers, yeah. Like I, I was mentioning this earlier before we were recording, but I'm in a, a local writers group that I'm a part of. And for some of the initial drafts, I, I would send versions of that to some of them and got, you know, I got some pretty good feedback from that. And that was very helpful. Do you remember what some of the best notes were that you received from the uh, beta readers? Probably a lot of it was clarifying, thing, asking for clarification of things because just basically just areas where I could be more, more con either not concise, but more, I, mm, sorry, hold on. <laughs> well, I mean, um, clarity, right? Like, you know, people yeah, were seeking it. maybe a little more detail on certain things that you had not provided. I mean, like me and my story that I'm working with right now. <laughs> yeah. Clarity is exactly it. <laughs> just asking for <laughs> clarification on things and suggestions on where I could tighten things up to where it, it go, it, it comes across as less rambly and more focused on what I was trying to say. So, okay. So do you feel that like in your earlier drafts, like the uh, lack of clarity came from something like what I was describing, where I was experimenting with how little I could get away with and I went too far, or was it more like you, you mentioned rambling, was it that you kind of got excited about some details that were less necessary. And so you put in like a paragraph about that. You know, I always call that Wikipedia mouth. You know, when a character in a story just starts talking about something the, the, the author obviously got really into. <laughs> like, it's all good in early drafts, but sometimes it survives till the later drafts. And oof. <laughs> oh, yeah. A lot of that stuff. I, th I think a lot for me, too, was I would try to, like, have these interesting ideas or these poetic ways of describing something. Mm. And in the initial f ways that I did it, it did not come across as clearly as I would have liked it to. 
So it was like, these were sections where I would just need to take a little bit more time and effort in clearing things up and focusing things and figuring out the best way of saying it, as opposed to the first way of saying it. Yeah. Well, you know, as I, I maybe I'm repeating myself earlier uh, in our little interview here, but I really felt what I read, uh, your final draft here, showed someone who really thought hard about their use of language. And there's the clarity that you mentioned you worked to get. There's also how, and I loved this, almost every chapter had a word I had to look up. And man, you know, I like that. I really like that. Like, I, I like to think, you know, I've read some books, you know, I'm an educated man, uh, but whatever. You know, it was really fun, especially with the words like uh, mucilant was came late in the story, just like a real good word for just gooey, gross crap. Uh, given, you know, your mention of Jack Vance and Clark Ashton Smith, you know, on the back cover tax and earlier today, I suppose it was to be expected. What was your approach while writing and editing regarding, I guess we could call it, you know, accessibility, you know, when to define a word for the reader and when to maybe leave it for them to figure it out themselves? Like how, you know, it must've been a constant razor's edge maybe, or maybe not. How, how, how did that go for you? Yeah. So I, I, I love doing that. <laughs> just adding in just the most insane difficult words that you, you know, that have no business being in everyday modern parlance. Um, <laughs> and it, for exactly the same reason you said, like, I love coming across a new, oh, a new word in books because then I get to write it down and be like, oh, I get to, I'm going to try to figure out how to use this in my own story <laughs> later on. My main like philosophy behind it or the reason why I try doing it is because in so many of those things, like, you know, with Clark Ashton Smith, Jack Vance, Gene Wolfe does this a lot. And that was a, that was another like pretty big influence with this. To me, it provides that like degree of separation to where it, it makes it otherworldly. I think I was having a conversation with someone about this where it, in a weird way, it provides a degree of verisimilitude to the fantastic because this is so different to how we normally talk. That makes it clear that this is not our world that makes it clear that this is like something that's completely different one of my like biggest pet peeves i think is when you're reading something that is you know a fantasy story or you know something like that and they, they just talk how we we're talking right now or they just talk in a very modern diction they use our everyday slang i think i heard somewhere that in not to throw any shade but in brandon uh -huh. sanderson's one of his more, most recent books, there's a character that literally uses the phrase cringeworthy. Ah. And yeah, that just, that just completely has no appeal to me. And that, that makes me just like want to not read it. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I really appreciate that degree of making sure that it comes across that this is a, I guess, like I said before, just an otherworldly fantastic setting. So yeah, make it, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. You know, it depends on what you know, where the sun is positioned and the moon or whatever, you know, but sometimes I really want that. And I enjoyed that in this story. You know, I have enjoyed, say, uh, Abercrombie, right? Who, his characters aren't straight up speaking modern slang or anything, but yeah, like they curse and so, and generally talk in a very relaxed fashion that could easily be like some guy you meet. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, whereas like, yeah, in this story, I, I thought you found a good balance between making it approachable and interesting. And as you say, otherworldly, it really made me feel like I was being taken somewhere. And isn't that kind of what you want with fantasy? I'm coming back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, setting and getting absorbed in that in a way other than getting a phone book worth of 
geographic detail, let's say, poured in your ear. There's other ways of doing that. And I think language is definitely a good, good way to play with that. It's something I'm definitely wrestling with myself. Sorry, I feel like I'm talking a lot about my writing, but you're, I feel like oh, no, I really fun. like what you're saying and it's making me think a lot about stuff I'm working with. You know, uh, the first chapter of the novel, the titular novel I'm apparently writing according to this podcast, <laughs> you know, the character, I've talked about this a little bit, she's trying to be a hero. Mm-hmm. And so I have her talk in like, what ho, you know, kind of heightened dialogue. <laughs> but uh, that's definitely like a kind of cheese that I'm doing on, on purpose. Although already I'm like, we'll just turn off people before they read far enough to know what's happening. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then there's like, you know, kind of what you're doing, which I think is absolutely in the tradition of Vance, where like Vance, I love how he went out of his way to find the most archaic language he could use. And then on top of that would just make up words. And sometimes you'd be like, okay, do I need to go back to a Victorian dictionary or do I just need to infer from context? <laughs> like yeah. what, what's going on here? Or do I need to refer to my Vancean dictionary that is available? But <laughs> I have a copy of that on my shelf, but you know, uh, but however you, you, you cut the mustard, like it's, it's fun. It's fun. It makes reading interesting. Like God forbid anybody should, you know, encounter a word they don't, And in in regards to what you're saying about like the accessibility of it, for some reason, that's something that I just didn't really like consider almost like for me, it was almost like if I write this and I like this, there's at least going to be some people who like it too. Like, cause there are, you know, the fans of Vance Smith and all these other ones. And I think it comes down to also like, I'm a big, um, I like a lot of different types of metal music and you know, that has no accessibility to people who don't like it <laughs> you know like it's the more intense and the more brutal it is the more the more it like sh- pushes away some people but then really endears itself to the people who really like it so i think that was a lot of my philosophy going into it where it's like this is something that i find a lot of value artistically in so for me personally at this at least at this stage i don't want to sacrifice that even if it means like a less broad readership But it helps you stand out and maybe makes the readers who do stick really stick. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we can't all be Brian Sanderson. Sorry. (laughs) So if you don't know what we're on about, Brian Sanderson is a perfectly lovely human being, as far as I can tell, who is getting a lot of talk right now because he is running the most successful ever literary Kickstarter for four novels. He just wrote in like a year (laughs) of the pandemic when he had more time. And it's earning so much money that understandably, there's a lot of sour grapes (laughs) being uh, chewed on by a lot of people and also a lot of just understandable sort of feeling of like, Oh, gee whiz. You know, I, I would, I would like if maybe, why was I turning to Rick from Rick and Morty there? Oh, gee, Rick, I wish uh, I could get some of that Brian Sanderson money. Uh, you know, uh, and, uh, but I, I almost admit it's, 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 so it's kind of got this guy on all our minds. And for those of you who aren't familiar, you know, he, his big break was getting tapped to finish a huge, huge, huge fantasy series. The wheel of time series. You may have seen the TV adaptation of, on Amazon, Hulu, one of the, not Amazon, uh, Amazon. Amazon of the Rings. Yeah, no, it was um, also on Amazon too. Oh right, sorry, pardon me. <laughs> Jesus, I know. Christ. Yeah, <laughs> they just got. So everything. yeah, when you when you're into a little sort of a niche genre that is hopefully coming into its own with maybe a, a another renaissance, I'm hoping. Uh, you wouldn't mind if maybe some of that mainstream dough flowed more towards the things you'd like, but. Uh, and Sanderson stuff is very broad appeal, but like, hey, guess what? Like, that helps you get more money. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so that t- that tug of war there. On the other hand, if you, you go out of the way to make something, you know, super appealing for everybody, maybe you wind up with the unsalted, salty cracker <laughs> of literature, and nobody really likes it. You know, so what is the perfect mm-hmm. formula for writing the most profitable book that is also uh, possessed of a distinct voice? Uh, give me your answer right now. No, I'm kidding, man. <laughs> yeah, like it's, this is the thing you're just constantly arm wrestling. But I think you yeah. made a good call with your use of language because I mean, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's your voice. 
it, I was like, oh, okay, this is Chase's voice. This is part of it. And also, I think maybe a, an answer to the quandary of like, oh, do I put in muculant, you know, or whatever. Uh, I did enjoy looking up that word or two each chapter that I was like, oh, starting to scratch my head at. But I never felt like I had to. I could infer from context. I was like, okay, well, I'm not familiar with that term for clothing, but it's plainly what the guy's wearing. And I can mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, if I don't want to go look that up, I can confer like, okay, it seems like kind of a robe situation. All right, good enough. The story doesn't hinge on his pants. I'll, uh, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep going, you know, or mucilant. Yeah. I was like, this is plainly a gross thing. And I can just be like, you know, it's gross and move on. But I like, I dig that word. I want to know more. So I went and looked it up and I was glad I did. And it's going to show up somewhere. I actually started referring to my cat as mucilant. Dude's nose is always running. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so there you go. Day-to-day -day usage oh, of quote-unquote archaic language from a sword and sorcery story. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to use myself as a leaping off point to a question for you here because I just, I'm an only child. I'm talking a lot by myself today. It's just where I'm at. I don't know what's going on. With my first novel, I'd love to have conquered the universe. I would love to get that Brian Sanderson money. But Honestly, my personal conditions for success with it were just completing the bloody thing, mm -hmm. selling it to a publisher, you know, didn't have to be a big one. It wasn't. <laughs> and having a fun launch party with my friends. Anything mm -hmm. else was gravy. In that vein, as we're coming up to, you know, the launch of Frolic on the Amaranth, then what are your goals with this book? How would you define success for yourself, do you think? I think it's mainly that just the people who do read it really like it and really get something out of it. I think that's really all I can ask for because, you know, I'm, I'm not having a publisher behind me. I'm not in any sort of like widespread appeal thing. So I'm not like, this is a hundred percent like a passion project for me right now. Just trying to get like this vision that I've had in my head out there to the world and just to kind of see what happens. So yeah, just to have people who want to read it, enjoying it and getting something out of it, um, whether that's like, you know, just pure enjoyment or just a, like, you know, a new sort of experience. So, well, I got to say, I mean, success uh, plus one, at least with me over here, you know, I, I, as soon as I saw the cover art, which actually that brings me back to a question I skipped over, that <laughs> cover art is tight. And Listener, I know you can't see it right now, but I'll put it up on the website. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm writing a novel.com. Go to the, the blog post for this interview. You can see the cover. Also, you can just go buy the book. You'll see the cover then. Uh, but yeah, I could. I, part of what that cover did really well, Like I think if I remember correctly, you shared it on the West End Discord. And mm -hmm. I saw it and I immediately was like, I want to read whatever the hell that is. And then you were like, hey, Oliver, do you want to read my book? And I was like, yes, sold already. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> Mission accomplished. It, honestly, a big part was not just that it's a cool cover that I think, you know, it shows your protagonist. It shows a villain looming over them, classic framing over the city in the background. It's technically proficient. The artist is very talented, obviously. Uh, and it's not the kind of sort of generic, like, it's a sword photoshopped in front of a field thing. But again, like, if you want to hear a common complaint amongst people in sword and sorcery lit circles, uh, listener, <laughs> that's one of them. Or the uh, cloaked figure that you can't quite see their face uh, kind of looking over their shoulder at the viewer, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, big publishers do these things for reasons, saves money, time, it's the thing that works, whatever. But I think one of the cool things about self-publishing is you are not beholden to that. And whether you have $10 or $10,000 to spend on the cover art, I think you can come up with something that works that is not 
generic and not, you know, and this certainly is not that. So yeah. So part of how aside from that that it's just cool, right? It's like, yeah, I literally was judging a book by its cover, which I think with big <laughs> publishers, well, you know, who knows what the author had in the way of input, probably not much. I try not to do it. With self-publishing, frankly, I do it a lot mm -hmm. because the author had creative control and the cover represents their aesthetic choices and shows like how well they make you know, creative choices in one medium. And to me, that maybe reflects on how they make choices on the inside as well. And so mm -hmm. I saw that cover and not only was it cool, but it kind of gave me faith. I was like, oh, I think this guy maybe like thinks hard about what he's doing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that probably will, you know, roll over into a good story. So, or at least certainly a well, if not a, a story that appeals to me, though it did wind up being one, something that I can at least respect from a technical standpoint. So yeah, like how did you go about finding an artist and all that stuff. Uh, how, how did that go for you, the cover design? So yeah, I basically just, I follow a lot of art artists on Twitter. <laughs> That's like my main thing that I do on Twitter is just like follow people who I think do really good art and they in turn also follow and retweet other people who do good art. And so then that just like builds on each other and everything. So, and so I just, yeah, I'd found this guy a while ago and I had really liked his stuff because it was, I don't even know how you describe it. Like um, it's so like just different and unique. I was talking to um, Jason Carney about it and, you know, the word he used to describe it when, you know, he, he was one of the first people who saw like the initial cover and the word he described of it was um, Byzantine ah. as a sort of like, you know, again, we're talking about like arch archaic sort of things and yeah. like otherworldly <laughs> archaic. So, and it was, it was interesting. It was the sort of thing where you hear this thing so much, do not skimp on your cover. Do not... <laughs> you know, hold back, pay money for a good cover. Cause like you said, like people judge a book by its cover in immediately. And so when I started talking to him, to the artists about it, you know, I, I gave him different things, different ideas that were in the story. And I also like, I, a big thing that I did was I sent him different examples of covers that I liked. I'm a big fan of the, uh, the old Ballantine fantasy covers that just have so much like vibrancy, so much color, so much, they're just so unique. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they don't actually convey anything that's <laughs> in the story, but they're just so cool looking that you just want to have it. And so I just like, I just gave him a bunch of stuff like that. I had no idea what he was going to turn out with it. His name's uh, Goran Gilovic? Gilgovic? I think it's Glavovic. Okay. Oh, I'm pretty, yeah, I'm probably making a mush of it here, but uh, I will yeah. put that name and a link to his art in the show notes, blog post, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, he does great stuff. He does a ton of stuff with, I think I posted this on the Whetstone Discord. Like he, he's doing a bunch of artwork of a theoretical Elric TV show that never was. <laughs> um, that's, that's really cool. He does a lot of artwork for like Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, which I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that. So big props to him. Awesome. Well, okay. So uh, I feel like we could talk endlessly because we both love the genre and I really liked uh, your book. But at some point, the interview must end. So how and when can people get this book? How people can get the book is most places, I believe. Um, obviously, there's Amazon, but I'm using the Ingram Spark book distributor to self-publish this. So I think through most book websites that sell physical books, that you should be able to find a copy of it there. Same for ebook. Amazon is obviously the, the go-to one. Hopefully, in most other places, I'll have one up by then. And then when is April 6th of this year? All right. So if I've done my work correctly, this should be going up a couple of days before then, but you can pre-order. Yes. So yes. Pre-order is available right this. now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, what are you working on next? Because one thing that I think is kind of fun about the novella format, as well as uh, you know, classic sword and sorcery, is that 
it can feel kind of like an episode, you know, it's not necessarily the complete story. And this definitely felt to me, especially right at the very end, I don't want to spoil anything, but it seemed like you were kind of sliding in some like, oh, what if some more stuff happened? Uh, so <laughs> are you working on another adventure of theirs uh, or maybe other things that are coming down the pipe? I have a few other adventures for them planned, but I don't know if that they're going to follow in the same novella format. They, they, those might take form in other short stories that might appear, hopefully appear somewhere else. The main thing now is another novella, and that is set in the same world that this one is set in, but is a deep exploration into something else involved with this world. So ah. there is something coming down the line, but it's going to be familiar, but very different too. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to it, man. Okay. So thank you so much for joining me and listener. Don't worry. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I will link the hell out of this book and its art in the show notes, blog post, and on Twitter for the show and all that stuff. So no excuses. You should go buy this book. I think it's really great. And you can find it real easy. Like, look for Frolic on the Amaranthine. So yeah, thanks for spending time with me, Chase. This was wonderful. Thanks for having me, man. It's really good. So I'm Writing a Novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy. Using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and Chase, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>